I took seven years of Spanish. Oh, you didn't just go to Peru for a week like Zach did? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the eternamente young, supuestamente hip y totalmente lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. How'd I do with those? You did, you did, I, I was super impressed. I was super impressed. Yep, those seven years of Spanish really paid <laughs> off. Um, so Zach is in Minneapolis for the Catholic Campus Ministry Association meeting. Uh, last we saw, he was camped out at the mm-hmm. Mall, Mall of Americas. Um, so he will be. He joined us for the interview, but we will be doing uh, the rest of the show uh, without Zach. So that falls on me to say what is on tap which is Brooklyn Brewery Lager, brought to us by patron Emily Hunter-McGuire, who came by the studios last Friday and mm-hmm. is really lovely. It was, she was she came from Iowa. It was her first yep. time in New York City, and she brought us these beers. Mm-hmm. So we are going to enjoy those today. So cheers. Cheers. And thank you, Emily. Thank you. And who's our guest, Olga? So this week, we're super excited to welcome Nagin Farsad. She's an American comedian, actress, writer, and filmmaker of Iranian descent based in New York City. And she's got a really cool story. She started off as a policy advisor in New York. um, And then at night, she would perform stand-up comedy. And then she eventually transitioned full-time into social justice comedy. Um, So we get into what exactly social justice comedy is and sort of her journey getting there. Yeah, and Nagin was named one of the 50 funniest women by Huffington Post and one of the 10 best feminist comedians by Paper Magazine. Um, so yeah, and I've, I've heard her on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and she's great, and I'm very excited to talk to her. Um, but first, this episode of Jesuitical is sponsored by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. JVC places passionate young leaders ages 21 to 35 in vital service among marginalized communities. During their year, volunteers live in intentional communities and participate in year-long Ignatian formation programs. JVC is taking applications for incredible placements throughout the country, like Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles and the International Rescue Committee in Atlanta. You can apply online at jesuitvolunteers.org slash apply. As I said last week, JVC is great. I've only met great people who have done JVC. Moving on, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. So last week, we told you about the referendum in Ireland over the Eighth Amendment, which um, guarantees protections for unborn children. Um, And we now know that the repeal passed. Uh, Abortion will now, uh, once they pass laws, abortion will be legal in Ireland. It had been uh, one of the last holdouts in Europe um, with very restrictive abortion laws. Um, So this was just disappointing for... uh, the pro-life movement in Ireland and, you know, worldwide Ireland, as we said last week, was this shining example of a place that was pro-life and pro-woman, uh, pro-family. Um, and it seems that the people have spoken and abortion will be coming to Ireland. Right. And uh, Bishop uh, Doran, um he has come out with some pretty tough word. Um, he stated that Catholics who voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment should consider going to confession, adding that he believed voting in this way was a sin if someone knew and intended abortion as the outcome of their vote. Yeah, so he he's the Bishop of Elphin in Ireland, but other, uh, other church leaders in Ireland are looking to the future. Um, Archbishop of Dublin, Dermot Martin, um, said he was surprised by the results. It was 
overwhelming. Two thirds were in favor of repeal, which I think surprised even people who were pessimistic about where this referendum was going. Um, He says the biggest challenge facing the Catholic Church in Ireland is how it it engages young people and young people in the uh, country uh, went 87 percent yes in favor of repeal. So I think it's certainly the case that whatever the church is doing right now to communicate with young Mm -hmm. people uh, is not working. So I think it's important that the Catholic leaders recognize that um, and will not only redouble their efforts uh, to stand for the unborn, but to um, make faith relevant for young people in Ireland again. So speaking of the church trying to regain uh, trust, um, Philip Wilson, who is the Archbishop of Adelaide, was just convicted of covering up sexual abuses by another priest um, after being told about it in 1976 when he was assistant parish priest. Um, And this comes after a five-year inquiry that was happening in Australia. The inquiry found that 7% of Catholic priests working in Australia between 1950 and 2010 had been accused of child sex crimes. And so like Ireland, where there was also a terrible sex abuse scandal, um, this has made uh, trust in the church in Australia very low. I think, uh, you know, this outcome was kind of expected just because Mm -hmm. the mood in Australia is such that uh, people want bishops and leaders held accountable, which I think they should be. And I think we have kind of reached a new point in the sex abuse crisis where we are seeing mm-hmm. more more church leaders held accountable. We have, you know, in Chile, we saw right. the 34 bishops offer their resignation to Pope Francis for their um, culpability in the sex abuse scandal there. Um, so, that, you know, as depressing as these stories are, it mm-hmm. is a welcome sign in my mind that we're actually seeing some accountability at the highest levels of the church. What's next, Ashley? Some news from Minnesota. Earlier this month, there was a historic meeting of religious leaders um, coming together uh, against white supremacy at the Basilica of St. Mary. Uh, bishops and top leaders of historic black denominations met with their white counterparts um, in the uh, the Catholic Church, uh, in uh, the Council of Churches, and other evangelical Christian groups coming together. Um, and it was marking the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination um, to really, you know, talk frankly about racial reconciliation um, in a religious context. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been really kind of encouraging to see this. Over the past six months, a lot of the bishops and top leaders uh, of these various uh, denominations have been meeting and talking to white congregants and sort of just trying to have a real honest conversation about what is happening in the United States. The Reverend Stacy Smith, who's one of the presiding elders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, stated that, you know, this is a necessary space because we need a unified front to dismantle racism and white supremacy through the lens of love. Um, and we've seen something very similar also in, within the Catholic Church. You know, we've uh, bishops formed the ad hoc committee against racism. Um, and throughout the year, they've been having listening sessions in parishes, schools, and just really, for lack of a better word, just creating a safe space where white Americans and people of color can just get together and talk. And I think, you know, the way things are, the church church spaces are really the place to kind of engage in this kind of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I mean, I, I was, when I was reading about this, I was surprised to read that the Twin Cities are actually ranked among the most segregated places in the mm-hmm. United States. You know, we hear a lot about racial tensions, you know, often in the South, but right. this is a good reminder that it's nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think, this is something you've written about, um, how the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. um, has is a little bit further removed from religion than the civil rights movement 
of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find it encouraging that these church leaders are realizing that they do have a vital mm-hmm. role to play in, yeah. in this. Yeah. That is, and you're absolutely right, Ashley, because I think one of the things that I've, like speaking to activists for research I've done, they're just like, you know, we want church leaders here. It's not as if they're like, you know, the civil rights movement happened with church leaders. We need it now. Um, so seeing things like this, it's it's really encouraging. All right. What's next, Olga? A new study from the Pew Research Center on U.S. attitudes towards refugees finds that only 50 percent of Catholics surveyed believe that the United States should accept refugees. That's kind of depressing. Yeah, it's very, very disheartening. Like there are a few things repeated more times in the Bible than like welcome the stranger mm-hmm. and the refugee mm-hmm. and the foreigner. Yeah. Um, so and this study also found that I think, what was it? A 25% of white evangelicals mm-hmm. uh, supported letting in refugees. Um, and and these aren't, these aren't like theoretical questions. Like these opinions and uh, feelings towards refugees is translating into very concrete policies that right. is limiting the number of refugees that are coming into the country. Um, for the year 2018, the Trump administration has capped admissions for refugees at 45,000. Uh, that's down from 54,000 the year before. And it's not just the absolute number of refugees that's going down. Um, the administration's uh, restrictions on uh, refugees from certain countries has also resulted um, in a lot less Muslim refugees coming into the country. So it used to be that the majority of refugees were from um, Muslim majority countries. And now it is there are more Christians coming in than Muslims. So if you're a Catholic who thinks we should do more for refugees, um, remind your families, remind the people around you that we also faced our own history of discrimination and we should do more the way more was done for us. So joining us today in studio is Nagin Farsad. She is an American comedian, actress, writer, and filmmaker of Iranian descent based in New York City. She is also the author of How to Make White People Laugh and director and star of the hit comedy, The Muslims Are Coming. Welcome to Jesuitical, Nagin. Uh, thanks so much for having me. We are very excited that you're here in studio with us. Yes. Yeah, it's a Thank lovely for... studio, guys. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first question, uh, you started off in public policy while performing comedy at night. Then you started doing social justice comedy full time. So can you talk a little bit about this journey and also what social justice comedy is in general? Yeah, um, I went to graduate school for public policy and then I, I, like you said, I was a policy advisor for the city of New York and I was, my whole goal was like to be a real adult and like (laughs) wear pantsuits, you know what I mean? And have some sort of 401k. Um, And uh, and that just, you know, I had been doing comedy on the side all along. Like, so in high school, I was always, I, I was a, I was the president of the theater club and of the debate team. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. a crossover nerd of like the (laughs) utmost order. Um, And then in college, I was also doing, you know, I was doing sketch comedy, but I was, I was a double major in government and theater. Um, So then I, I, the whole the whole time I just was expecting for it to be a phase that was going to like pass, you know, like my goth phase passed. <laughs> um, but it sort of never did. Uh, and I really believe in public service and I really wanted to, you know, go and make a difference and eventually run for office and all of that stuff. And I worked with some amazing people, you know, and I interned for Hillary Clinton and Charlie Rangel and like, you know, I made the rounds. But uh 
it, the the draw of comedy was really strong and I was doing it at night and like so I would go and like present findings to city council during the day or whatever and then at <laughs> night I would like chuck about you know make jokes about city council and so like it became deeply inappropriate at some point <laughs> um, and so yeah so that's kind of like why I switched over but I think what you know something that was important to me was that like my comedy not just be like a self-serving narcissistic endeavor you know which I think comedy is is largely um and did you think you could have more influence on issues you cared about through comedy than through the public service work you were doing I mean it's really hard to say that because what especially now that I've seen both you know behind the curtain on both sides public servants are really like they're sitting at their desk crunching numbers and figuring out exactly how to deliver services to people, you know? Um, And that, you can't really argue with that. Like, that's a very direct um, relationship between public servant and public. And uh, I just started binging Parks and Rec this weekend, so I feel like that's a good, like, crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Parks and Rec, but think more efficient than that, uh, is where I was at, campaign finance. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, it's interesting because I I get, you know, I get, like, so upset when people read, you just like uh, talk trash about um, people who work in politics because I'm like, you know, sure, there are those that uh, try to pay for prostitutes with public funds, you know, <laughs> and those guys aren't great. You know, use your own piggy bank for your prostitutes. But um, there but there's also um I'd say by and large, I mean, in my experience of all the people that I met in that world, they're just hardworking people that are trying to figure out how to make things better all the time. So I think I think my thing was I'm going to try and be happy on my own terms, but hopefully still try and have an element of public service in my work. And look, I mean, I wrote like for MTV and Comedy Central and Nickelodeon. And I, you know, it was, I had the jo- the kind of jobs where they were like, you need to have 45 jokes about Justin Bieber's abs on my desk by 1 p.m., you know? <laughs> and I did those jobs. So it's, it's I, I, and, and I will still do those jobs. It's, I don't have a problem with it, but I also, but I offset it by doing stuff like making the film The Muslims Are Coming. Can you talk a little bit about that film? Sure. Um, well, so, um, so we basically rounded up a bunch of Muslim American comedians um, in a nonviolent way. <laughs> And um, we went around the country uh, to places like Alabama and Georgia, uh, you know, uh, Arizona, Idaho, places where they love the muzzies. And uh, we did these shows um, and we called uh, the tour The Muslims Are Coming. Uh, and we documented the entire thing. Um, and we, we also did street actions in each city. So we would like set up and ask a Muslim booth in the middle of a town square. People could come ask us any kind of question they wanted. What we, kind of questions did you get? I, I got a lot of questions questions about my well there's two main areas one about like what I look like what I was wearing because they were just I think that everybody has like this image of Muslims that they're like just a couple for the ladies especially a couple of eyeballs floating Mm -hmm. in like a black sheet like over the desert they're not even walking they're just floating (laughs) and uh and so that's just kind of the image that people have and so I think it was really unusual for them to see like like a lady dressed like a cartoon character you know what I mean (laughs) um and the simple answer to that is like oh, like Islam says you can basically do whatever you think is right. Mm -hmm. Hey, like it's kind of that simple. So did you, I mean, so obviously they had preconceived notions about like what a Muslim was like. Did you, were you surprised by any, like did you have any expectations about these places like that were upended? I think, I mean, 
what's interesting is I got the question a lot, um, like, what did you think of 9-11? And, uh, and I think that question, it's funny because I think, you know, so that movie came out in 2014. But like in nowadays, I think if that question were to be like, there would be Twitter rage and like, you know, the Internet would lose its mind over someone asking that question. But I think like the key. So so in that sense, it was kind of like I expected to maybe get outrageous questions like that. And then I did. But what I didn't expect was that, that I and this was the aim was to fully put yourself in the shoes of the person who's asking Mm -hmm. what have they seen their whole lives like what have they been watching what kind of access to media do they have and if they're watching like you know Fox News and if they're if they're watching just like any kind of mainstream coverage of world events they're seeing Muslims in a certain light so they're not getting you know we got the question all the time like why don't Muslims denounce terrorism and the fact of the matter is mainstream media is not going to cover a bunch of like delightful people denouncing violence it's just not the click worthy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're like an average Joe, um, and and you're you're not getting that information, instead you're you're flooded with all this other stuff. I think it's a legitimate question. Hey, what did you think of nine eleven? Because I heard like from our president that you, your people were cheering, you know. Right. And so if you're hearing that stuff, like that becomes a legitimate question, and it's not something that I can get angry at. Like mm-hmm. it's just something that I have to answer, and then hope that the answer sticks. Mm-hmm. And this is something you you mentioned in How to Make White People Laugh, that you use you want to use comedy, it being the tool that you have. And do you think it has been helpful in your experience to kind of fight stereotypes that you find or just to fight racism in general? I think the thing is that, like, I, I want more people to have fun in general. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But I also want those same people to, like, care about issues and be a part of, like, uh, the fight for immigrant rights and the fight against Islamophobia and the fight, you know, the fight against racism. And so for me, I'm just, I just feel like at every turn, I want to, I want things to be more inviting. And comedy is more inviting. It's just more inviting. And I also like not getting into uh, an insane rage uh, and, and like a, a rant against someone is uh, also more inviting. <laughs> like mm-hmm. having, I, you know, my approach is aggressive delightfulness and like that. And, and that takes the form, you know, mostly of comedy. And then other times it takes the form of like, Literally, like when we were in these states, we would just hand out candies and pastry in in the hopes that people would just come and chat with us Mm -hmm. because that's more inviting, you know? And that's a different style of comedy because a lot of comedians tend to go for the shock stuff or the Mm -hmm. stuff that's intentionally supposed to rile you up and cause a reaction. Yeah, I mean, I I think like you know, uh, you, you know, there's plenty of documentary filmmakers that'll go out and be like, make a movie, being like, this, these are the jerks of America, you know. And I could have made that movie, and in fact, there were plenty of moments um, that we had jerks of America being jerks, uh, but we left those things on the cutting room floor because that's not the point. The point yeah. is, can you actually? Um, make something entertaining and funny and inviting when your goal is to make yeah. friends. You Can know? you think of like a specific interaction where you think you might have actually changed someone's heart or mind? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like um, after uh, that movie came out, um, I remember getting an email from, you know, I got a lot of emails and I got an email from this 
guy who it, who was in the military, he joined the military because of 9-11. And then they sent him to Afghanistan. Um, and he learned, in Af- in Af- yeah, he was just like, I hate Muslims. This is about Muslims. I hate Muslims. And then he went to Afghanistan. And then he's like, I hate Muslims. But that guy Mohammed is like pretty great. Like, you know, he, was, he started making like Muslim <laughs> friends. And then he was just like, ooh, like I really love this neighborhood. Like, and he would meet villagers. And like, and so he, he just kind of slowly started like losing that, uh, you know, that vitriolic hate. And then um, he comes back to the United States where we're sort of at the height of Islamophobia. And then he starts hearing people like, you know, the ground zero mosque controversy, Obama's a Muslim, like all of the fun stuff that we say here in America. Uh, And he just started like just being like, it's not sitting well because do you remember Fatima? She was like super cool and like made that great hummus. Um, And then he sees my film and I'm obviously like totally exaggerating on his email. He he did say all of these things, but like not in the ridiculous detail that I'm giving. Anyway, um, I extrapolated a lot of my own imagination. But like, uh, but and then he said, you know, then I saw your film, and I and I and I feel like I've come full circle to like I I renounce my former self and my former views um, because Muslims aren't the problem. And and it was one of these things where that's the kind of impact I think that you can hope for where you're a a little tiny piece in someone's evolution Mm -hmm. and um, you know and it's the kind of email that just like made me cry made me smile and and made me feel like okay like this stuff is you can't quantify you don't know what kind of impact you're having Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's these moments where someone is telling you oh just so you know you specifically had an impact this type of experience you're describing sounds a lot like conversion to me. Mm-hmm. And you even have used that word yourself. You're trying to convert mm-hmm. uh, people who are, I think you refer to them as swing haters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and do you think that our culture is ready to receive people who convert from things like that? You, you mentioned earlier that like Twitter rage culture um, doesn't really allow for a space like that. I think of um, the I'm like blanking on his name, but he was the founder of um, I think the organization is called Exodus International, the gay conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And I ju- I'm just using it as an example of someone who very prominent who changed their views. Right. We have these people in history. Now, the question is, can we accept them? And I think now it's so much like I think, you know, uh like this excess international, like I think he would have been maybe more accepted five years ago. <laughs> I don't know where things stand with him now, but I hope that I accept him. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I believe him and I, you know, will like, will there be some additional verification on my part to just like ensure <laughs> that like he's not trying to convert, you know, like, yeah. Um, But I think, but I, I think we have to believe that people change, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like I mean, we have to believe when we give someone a prison sentence of five years that they of course our system is set up so horribly and it's not about rehabilitation, it's a whole other subject. But in the abstract, we have to believe that like when they come out that they can still rejoin society and be a better person and not do criminal activity. Like 
I want to live in a world where I believe that. And I've seen that. I mean, I've seen that on micro levels, even with my own parents, where like, Mm -hmm. you know, I uh, where they were like a little weird about Jews. And then they like get these Jewish neighbors like, did you know that Jewish family are just like Iranian family? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, like every family is like every family. Did you just need neighbors to move in and like give you a rum cake to like prove that point? But they did. And that but it and it helped them change. Right. Has has your work changed you at all, Nikki? Um, I think my work has made me far more uh, like um, understanding of like what we might think of as quote unquote Trump voters or mm-hmm. red state voters. You know, I live in New York City, and I've I I you know you can be shielded from it. The interesting thing is that I you know I remember the day after the election, like. The you know the t- the the Korean dry cleaner was upset, and then the the Tajiki taxi driver was upset, and then the couple of drug dealers on my block were also upset. <laughs> and you know, so so the weird thing about New York is that we're not actually in a bubble; we're in this diverse pool of people. Mm-hmm. It's not only uh, you know ethnically and racially diverse; it's also economically diverse. So you're seeing like a ridiculous, ridiculous range of people. So I think I already. Have had like a compassion towards a ridiculous range of people. Mm-hmm. It's just what I was around all the time, right? And even growing up in Southern California. Um, but I think what I have, what we do get shielded from is a more like a traditional definition of like a conservative um, who, you know, I, I remember performing in um, Oklahoma and, and walking into stores that were like weapons allowed or weapons not allowed. And I was like, what are all these weapons signs? <laughs> and I was like, guys, this is hilarious. There's like all the, and they're like, every, literally everybody has a gun in the game. Like everybody has a gun. So that to me is something that's like very difficult to wrap your mind around, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I feel like I've, 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 I've got it's it's helped the work has helped me kind of get a little closer to like understanding still super against guns by the way but uh but to understanding that it that context is everything and you know Nigine, this might be obvious but uh, a lot of the things you're describing um sound really hard to put your your own identity um in front of so many people that might be hostile to you all the time um it, as much as you come off uh, very delightful and charming and joyful about it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I, Tell my mom, please. <laughs> I, will. Uh, I imagine that's got to be really hard. Has that like made you re-examine your own faith? I think the hard parts are like, I mean, death threats are unfun. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I, I, I was I performed in Washington State and I remember this was like two hours outside of Seattle. It's like, you know in the mountains where twilight was filmed kind of deal. And there's like <laughs> shapeshifters around. And, uh, it was a very weird show. And, um, there were, but, but let's say maybe like 20, um, people in a Christian group that were, uh, protesting my show. And as I don't know what they thought I was going to do anyways, I'm a very powerful person. Um, <laughs> uh, lots of fear. Uh, but, but, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I, I was like, this isn't, fun you know what I mean it's like not great because it's like it's so personal because it's so it's so like you we're protesting Mm -hmm. you you know (laughs) and like that's very feels really weird Mm -hmm. and um you know but then I remember like saying to those guys like oh do you guys want to 
like come inside because it's raining um and and you could just enjoy the show and then like after you could resume protesting when everybody's leaving you know um and they're like no uh, you know no thanks we'll we'll wait in the lobby or whatever but i but i thought you know one thing that's sort of beautiful about that is that uh like they totally have the right to protest. I totally have the right to invite them to my show. There's been, you know, there's been times when my parents have called me to be like, "Just don't tell anyone you're Muslim," you know, and 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 they're like, "You're not even really practicing." So what is it? Why, you know, why are you, you know, doing this? And I'm like, well, it's sort of like I, I grew up this way, you know, and I don't, I can't just like renounce my everything about myself. Um, because that would just feel like I'm lying, you know? Uh, so it's Ramadan right now and I'm not fasting. Um, and yet uh, I grew up with with grandparents who would fast and I would like mock them gently about not being able to eat. It's like a part of the thing, you know? Um, and so I guess it doesn't actually, it doesn't shake my uh, faith. I feel like it just strengthens my my feeling that like like in the America that I know we're we're all invited to the party. You know, Catholics also at one point in their history were very discriminated yeah. against. And we've, you know, sort of come into acceptance for like half the Supreme Court or something right now. Um wow, is, is it really half? Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Impressive guys. <laughs> I know, I know. We've come up. Uh but hopefully as Muslims become more accepted in society, do you think there are, that either you or future generations of Muslims who maybe won't practice will be feel like it's easier to, you know, not identify if they're not practicing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think like generations of Christians have been in the United States who don't practice, right? But they still call themselves Christian. So I, I feel like it's having a kind of like secular uh identity uh that has like just inklings of uh spirituality and faith is has already been very common in the united states you know and so i feel like that might be kind of what comes out of it and i think maybe on the flip side as things become easier for uh brown people in general maybe they'll feel more comfortable like openly practicing uh, and I, you know, cause I think that's uh, a part of it too. I know a lot of Muslims that are just like trying to pretend like they're not fasting when they're at work, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, that's, uh, that's tough. Um, so maybe if the, if it's just kind of in the air, oh, it's Ramadan, it's not a big deal. Like, uh, you know, Joe's going to fast, whatever, you know, it's, yeah. it ends up being easier. Yeah. If I fast, I, I, I do it like once or twice a year. I it's tell the worst. Every year. <laughs> it's horrible. That's, what I, yeah. that's no, it, what I would do. That's what I It's much worse for us than it is. It would be that. like an automatic response on my email. <laughs> like, don't expect a response. I'm fasting right now. Uh, um, so one one final question for you. Um, so in the Catholic Church, we pick people out as examples of the faith, and we make them saints. So we want to invite you to canonize someone today. Um, so if you can canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who uh-huh. would it be, and why? Oh. It's it's so weird because I'm just going to tell you the first person that came to mind. You guys might think it's like super bizarre that this is the person. Okay. Um, I would canonize Bjork. Okay. Um, and I would do that because she doesn't care what anyone thinks about 
anything she does ever. Mm-hmm. She's like such a true expression of herself mm-hmm. and unedited, uncensored. And I find that so brave, mm-hmm. but I don't even think she thinks that's brave. She's yeah. just like, no, this is just like right. my existence, right. whatever, right? <laughs> like, but, uh, and I, I aspire, I like, I think it would be like, kind of amazing if everybody was like that <laughs> or terrifying i don't know yeah, no that's um, what god calls all all of us to be our most are your truest self yeah. yeah and yeah. so anyways that was the first name that came to mind okay. when that's you said awesome. that cool so all right Saint Saint- <laughs> 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 all right well thank you so much for joining us this has been really lovely thank thanks for guys for in. having <laughs> me no and, thank you and where can people find your work if, or see oh, where yeah. you have tours coming up and stuff like that yeah actually I'm on the Vagical Mystery Tour as well uh, so come and check that out and uh, all of that stuff is on nagineforsad.com a name that's both easy to pronounce and spell we'll have it um, in our show notes <laughs> and, uh, and yeah and I'm gonna be uh, on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me in, a, in, in the coming a couple weeks from now and then uh, in the Boy Cat Bigotry show um, in Virginia and uh, all of that stuff will be on my website you can follow me on twitter and on facebook and i do all and instagram i do all of those things awesome cool thank you so oh, and much subscribe to my podcast fake the nation if you like listening to things which if you're <laughs> listening to this right now you will also like listening to that thing <laughs> awesome thank right. you so much thank you thank you guys All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. Uh, first, we ask you every week to leave us an iTunes review. We do, sometimes <laughs> desperately. And as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts where they ask me to leave an iTunes review, I know that <laughs> it's pretty easy to ignore that request. <laughs> um, but it really does make a difference. This is how most people find their podcasts. It's, you know, if they're highly reviewed, they show up on your little app. Apple Podcast app or in iTunes. Uh, so we really, really value people's reviews. And also, uh, just our weekly reminder that we've also got a Patreon page. Um, and we have started sending um, some of our patrons our really, really cool Jesuitical swag. Um, the shirt is in Jesuitical blue. It has a really cool image of Pope Francis with glasses. Um yeah, so if you want to be able to um, not just be a part of our Patreon community and receive this really cool swag, but also engage in monthly Google Hangouts with us, um, become a member at patreon.com slash americamedia. Um, and shout out this week uh, to Eileen Foss, who has donated at the ambassador level. Thank you for becoming a Jesuitical patron. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a desolation this week. I'm at the point um, in like right into the summer where I'm like caught up in so many areas of my life, like my professional, personal, um, and I'm getting really, really um, like falling into my own anxiety. And the first thing that suffers is my prayer life, my spiritual life. And it's been a huge desolation because it's like I was riding that like Holy Land high, then the Easter high. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to do this. And now we're in ordinary time. And the first thing that suffers is my prayer life. And I'm it's been desolating to like not have that like the intentional time that I take every day to just talk to God and to just like reflect on my own spirituality. Um, and it's been very desolating because I'm just depriving myself of that moment with God. Um, and yeah. 
it's just it's just been hard to kind of jump back into it. What about you, Ashley? I've got a consolation. Um, so I went to mass, my usual parish mass. Um, this is actually two Sundays ago, but it stuck with me. Um, it, I was sitting in mass, and there was someone a few rows behind me who I couldn't I couldn't see him, but um, he he had Down syndrome, and he was basically like pre every time every part of the mass he was like preempting the priest and like saying saying the priest lines or like repeating the priest lines Mm -hmm. and was just like so into the mass like you could tell like he just loved the mass um and like no one in the congregation was like upset or mad or wanted Mm -hmm. him to leave it was just like this added element of like this 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 young man loved the mass so much and that joy just overflowed to the rest of the congregation um and so after after mass i like just like felt this i like i wanted to meet him i was mm-hmm. like who is this person and so i talked to him and his mom um his name is mark and i just like i saw god in him and someone i don't want to like underplay the challenges that come with living with down syndrome or mm-hmm. taking care of with someone who lives with down syndrome um but being with him in mass uh was just like he he was such a great witness to a like just uninhibited love for mm-hmm. for god and for other people he was talking to everyone everyone wanted to talk to him um so i just i saw i saw god in this young man and i hope i see him again at mass Ooh, that's beautiful thank you for sharing that yeah all right Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Catherine Addington. Jesuit formation provided by Eloise Blondio. Engineering and design by Angelou Jesus Conta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to The Catholic Lion King. And leave us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. This show was made possible by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. To apply to join, visit JesuitVolunteers.org slash apply. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.